please let me have my welcome. My name is Rich. Uh, I'm the pastor here at the church. It's really great to see you. Happy Easter to you. Uh, and it is a great joy and a great th- excitement to look at these wonderful words together. Uh, just before we do so, let me pray and ask for God's help. Our gracious God, this is wonderful, wonderful news. Jesus is not dead, he is risen. Father, please, with that truth, so excite us and grab us this morning and lift our hearts to you in praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Life. Life. That's what Easter is all about. New life. That's why our cards are full of lovely little lambs and we give each other yummy Easter eggs. But of course... Christians know that Easter is so much more than just the new life that spring brings. Easter is the new life that Jesus brings. Jesus, risen from the dead himself, a sign and assurance that all who are trusting in him will be risen too. Easter Sunday is not a PS at the end of the story. It's not a little footnote, oh yeah, and Jesus rose again. We most 100% certainly must not take away from Good Friday all the things that we just sung about in these wonderful songs. No fear in uh, death, no fear in death, no hope in life. Um, Guilt done away with, sin paid for on Good Friday as Jesus hung on the cross. But the resurrection of Jesus has started a sequence of events that will lead to the ultimate climax of all human history. That's what we're going to see in these verses that we're looking at today. As Andrew uh, describes, if you're regular here, we've just finished this seven-week series looking at the seven annual festivals that God gave his people to celebrate And we've seen how each of them finds their fulfillment in Christ. Uh, The Passover, Good Friday, Jesus, the Passover lamb, was crucified. Does anybody know what Jewish feast it is today? You're you're very not sure. I I hear mutters. First fruits. Yeah, Angie, you should know. (laughs) The feast of first fruits. Today is, Jewish people are celebrating the feast of first fruits. And so are we. So are we. Back then, we saw when Jewish people celebrate the Feast of First Fruits, it was about them thanking God for bringing them into the Promised Land and thanking God for the harvest, the crops that He had provided for them. And so, when the first fruits of the first harvest had been gathered up out of the land, they were to stop. And they were to bring it to Jerusalem and give it as this offering to him of thanks. And the first fruits were were a sign of more to come. So when that first, I have no idea, what what season is it? Some gardener help me out. When the first raspberry appears, what's coming next? I don't know. Anyway, when the the first raspberry appears or the first apple appears on the tree, uh, whatever it may be, you don't look at that and go, ooh, yum, all done. That was a good haul. No, when that first one comes along, it's the first fruits. It's the sign that there is more to come. And that is how the Apostle Paul applies the feast of first fruits. He applies it to Jesus' resurrection. 
So twice, if you noticed, was, as Poi read it, in verse 20 and verse 23, Jesus' resurrection is described as the first fruits. Paul is where he's saying, look, think back to that time, you know, when you gathered the, the first crop in from the field, and, and that first crop in from the field was the sign that there was much more to come. And Paul says that is what Jesus' resurrection is like. Jesus rose from the dead as the first of many. The first of many. And you can see from the sheet, as I've inferred already, that Jesus' resurrection set off this, this chain of events that is going to ultimately lead into to the total and complete victory of Jesus over everything as he overthrows all hostile powers, including death. So we're going to go through these three points. So first off, we're going to look at the first fruits, Jesus himself, his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is, is the, the, the most comprehensive view that, Jesus, uh, that the Bible gives on resurrection life. And the reason why Paul felt it necessary to go to such depths here is that the Corinthian church had got themselves in a complete muddle. You can see in verse 12, if you look back earlier in the chapter, uh, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you, you church, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of the church themselves have got so, so muddled, so confused that they are saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They've been swept along with how their society, and indeed our society mostly, views bodies particularly back then, that they, they viewed their bodies as unimportant. You know, when you get the, um, the celebration or the little chocolates, that they viewed the, their bodies as like the wrapper. Okay, when you get the little celebration, the interesting bit is on the inside, isn't it? You, you discard the wrapper. And that's how they'd come to view their bodies. Their bodies were like a wrapper that were ultimately to be discarded. The soul, the spirit, that was the real you. And that was the thing which was eternal. So they'd they come to this very limited understanding of the salvation that Jesus brings. Yes, your soul goes to be with the Lord, wonderful, but, but that's it. But that's not it. That's not it. And I wonder at times whether sometimes we can be in danger of forgetting again that full scope of the salvation Jesus brings. You know, we talk about our hope of heaven we focus on our spirits going to be with Jesus at the moment a Christian dies. And those are wonderful, wonderful things. But actually, a Christian's eternity isn't our spirits with Jesus in heaven. A Christian's eternal future is physical resurrection bodies united with perfected souls in the new creation. A physical, physical reality. And Jesus' resurrection proves that. And so, in verses 1 to 11 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds the Corinthians, Jesus really did rise. He really did. So what is of first importance to Paul, if you have a look at the end of verse 3, is not only that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, 
but also, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And this, was a his, this is a historical reality. Just see the, the list of the witnesses going on. Verse 5, and he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, the rest of the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to, the, uh, to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus rose and he appeared before hundreds of people. And did you notice how Paul says that most of them are still alive? That's not, again, just an interesting side note. They say, look, go and check with them. Go and see, with, go and ask them about it. Those people who saw the resurrected Jesus, go and ask them. Most of them are still here. Jesus did rise from the dead, the first fruits. Now, in the paragraphs, either side of the ones that we're looking at deals with the questions, well, what if there is no resurrection from the dead? And most clearly, we see it in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. It's fruitless. It doesn't go anywhere. You know, before, before Christmas, you can go, I, I, I believe I'm so confident that Santa is going to give me a Ferrari this year. I really believe it. I really believe it. No, you, my faith is futile. It's, gonna, it's not going to lead anywhere. And Paul's saying, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is that futile. Nothing comes of it. And you are still in your sins, he says in verse 7. So your sins haven't been dealt with. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign and the proof that Good Friday worked. And so you're very much in your sins and heading for judgment. And in verse 19, he wraps it up. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. Most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection for the dead, Christians should be pitied. Uh, I read this morning in the news, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, ref uh, reflecting on Easter. Uh, and he said, Easter is a great time to reflect on the contribution made by Christian communities. And then he added that they, Christian communities, offer support and a sense of belonging to so many across the country. Well, yes. But Paul would say, well, no. No, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they are Christians are to be pitied. They are wasting their time. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is just a psychological crutch. But, verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus, the first fruits. And, and the first fruits um, <coughs> tells us three things. The, the order, okay, it comes first. It also tells us that it, it uh, the first fruits represents the same quality. And then thirdly, it's the promise of more to come. And so Jesus' resurrection is like that first bushel of barley that they dug up, or well, didn't dig up, they, they harvested. It's the sign that there is so much more to come. 
And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a great resurrection harvest to come. The harvest is on its way, so much more, and it's of the same quality. You think of it this way. The great harvest of new life has started, and it started with Jesus. Death has already been defeated. A man has traveled into death, risen to life, not to die again. It started. The first fruits has happened, that first Easter Sunday. But that is, assures us and leads us to confidence in this great harvest to come. That's the second point we're going to look at. So if Jesus is the, fir- the first fruits, well, Christian believers are the harvest. Verse 21 and 22 explain how it's going to happen. For, as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, let's, let's, let's dig into these verses. Uh, according to Paul, there are two groups with like a, a, represent, a representative so if you think back to school, maybe, you know, you're kind of picking teams, and you end up kind of, you have Andrew's team and Rich's team. You know, so we've got the team, but it's easier just to kind of say that you've got the representative. So it's like there are these two groups, these two teams. There is Adam's group, and there is Jesus's group. And every single human being who has ever lived is in this Adam group. Adam, as of Adam and Eve from, from Genesis. Every single human being is in Adam's group because we have that shared ancestor, Adam. And if you remember, if you know the, 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 the account from Genesis 3, from the first book of the Bible, you had Adam and Eve, and God gave them this vast garden. And he was generous. He said, look, enjoy it all. But don't eat the fruit of this one tree. And if you eat the fruit of this one tree, you will die. Strict warning. But Adam and Eve ignored that warning. They wanted to live their own way. And so they ate that fruit. And sure enough, they were sentenced to death. And years later, they died. And every single person born is is not only born under that that curse of death, as it were, but follows in Adam's path, wanting to live their own way, which was why ultimately every single human being will die. It's the universal statistic. So here's this first group, Adam's group, and in Adam all die. We will all die unless Jesus comes back. But there's also this second group, this second team, this second humanity, which is Jesus's group. And just as all who are in Adam will die, well, so we read there in verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, all who are in Christ shall be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. At his coming, the, the word coming is the, the word used uh, for like great, um, uh, what are they called? What are the Roman leaders called? 
emperors, their emperors and all that. When the great emperor turned up, it was their great coming, their great arrival. And that's the word being used here, at Jesus coming. At Jesus, the king of the whole world, at his coming, at his arrival, when he returns physically, all who belong to him, all who are in Jesus, will be raised to life and given glorious resurrection bodies. And if you want to read about it, please do later. Verse 39 to, uh, sorry, 35 to 49, describe that. And that is why, in verse 20, Paul describes Christians who have died as those who have fallen asleep, which is a lovely description. I think in our world, again, we're so hesitant and wary and uh, wanted to avoid the topic of death that we've, we come up with all kinds of descriptions to describe death. You know, someone's deceased or passed away or gone to a better place or kicked the bucket or, or whatever you want to do. Well, this isn't avoidance. This is because the situation has been completely transformed. For a Christian, death is like falling asleep. Because when Jesus comes back, there will be this new resurrection life. The obvious question this morning is, is are you in Christ? We're all in Adam. We're all there. Are you in Christ? Are you one who is going, when Jesus comes back, to be raised with him with this wonderful resurrection physical bodies for all eternity? How do you know? How can you be sure? How can you be here? Well, it's hearing about Jesus, hearing about his death on Good Friday, how he paid for sins, bore the curse, paid the price to set people free, and about how he rose again in life. It's hearing that and then trusting him, trusting him with your life, trusting in him with your death, trusting that he is the king over everything. And when we're in Christ, we can face death with confidence because just as he rose the first fruits, so there will be this great harvest of all his people. And then thirdly, the third sequence, Jesus the first fruits on Easter Sunday, then when he comes back, there's going to be the harvest of all his people, and then finally the ultimate victory. This is the climax of human history when Jesus' saving work is complete, when he undoes or completely undoes the mess created by Adam, when every authority and power <coughs> excuse me, that is set up against God is defeated. Have a look at verse 24. Then comes the end. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And the worst, the last and the worst power or death. Verse 25, for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In a broken and fallen world, the world that we live in, death has become, I think, almost natural, normal. But it's not. Death is not natural. Death is not right. Death is an enemy 
that Jesus will ultimately destroy. When he comes back, there will be no more death. Death is already beaten as Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty for sin where it removes the the, the sting of sin. And he rose again, raised a new life. He has already beaten death, but we still wait for that ultimate victory when it will be destroyed. And when he does, when he comes back, well, then Paul bursts out in that, that, that wonderful poetic praise. If you look towards verse 54 and 55, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death will be ultimately destroyed, completely defeated. And then verse 27 and 28, as Paul read, she did really well. It can be a bit confusing. There's different things being subjected to different things in it. If we go slowly, I I think we'll get there. Have a look at verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. God has put all things under Jesus' feet. Sign of subjection, of total victory. All things have been put under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, he, God the Father, is accepted. Who put all things under subjection under him. So everything's been put under Jesus' feet, except God the Father himself, the order of, of, of Trinity. So he's done that. Okay? Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, probably Jesus, that could be the Father, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son, Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him. You followed that? Mostly, okay, right? So... God the Father's put all things under Jesus' feet, all things except the Father himself, and when all things are under the, the, uh, under the Son, well, the Son joyfully submits himself under the Father. Okay, even if you didn't follow that, get this last bit, that God may be all in all. That's where it's heading. There will be a time when all these authorities and powers are defeated, when death is destroyed where there will be nowhere where God's glory and perfection does not reign supreme. Everything that hurts, everything that harms, gone. And God's rescued people will bask in and reflect the glory of God. And we know this because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. There will be this great harvest leading to the ultimate victory, the complete and total victory. Jesus' resurrection kick-started this process. As I finish, can, can I, I want to speak to, I guess, two groups of people, although please do listen to both because they'll both apply at some stage. First off, can I speak to, to, to those who are facing death at the moment themselves? Maybe because it's of your age or because of your health. Maybe it's a loved one who, because of their age or their health, is looking at death. Or Christians, those who are in Christ, can face that death with confidence and hope. 
because we know what is to come. Real, physical, resurrection life. So many who are living in their last days have so little hope of what is to come. Not for Christians. The the first funeral that I ever held was a, a lovely lady called Dorothy. I can't actually remember. She's either 98 or 99. Um, she, she was lovely. I used to give her a lift home from Bible study each week. And I loved how her mind worked. Every, almost every week she would say, oh, these speed bumps are a bit big, aren't they? And then almost the next words out of her mouth were, I think Jesus is coming back soon. And I want to know what the connection was between speed bumps and Jesus' return. But um, she had such hope. She had such confidence. And it was, in a sense, a joyful... Her her funeral was, in some sense, a joyful occasion, although pain for the family, but because she had hope, not only of going to be with Jesus the moment she died, but because she was going to have a new resurrection body, an eternity with Jesus. Christians have hope in the face of death. And I guess for those of us who who perhaps maybe aren't immediately facing death, although again, it's all applied to everyone really, are you living in the light of resurrection life? Verse 32, I think, puts it well. Paul says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no resurrection from the dead. Well, then you might as well live for today. Eat, drink, be merry, have a great time, because that's all there is. But Paul is making the opposite point there. He said, well, because there is resurrection from the dead, we live for something bigger, for something more than just the here and the now, my own personal pleasures. When we're living, or when we're not living in the light of the future, well, making sacrifices is hard. Because we just feel the cost for here and now. But actually, when we are remembering the future, that frees us to make sacrifices now because we know there's so much more to come and we know that it is worth it. And that's a great reminder for us. And this is what I hope will stay with you through Easter Sunday and then on. is to keep that future focus now, as Christians, if in this room, I, I don't know if there'd be any of us who would deny the react these future things, but I think at times we can forget them. My prayer is for us that we would be fixed on this wonderful future, looking back with confidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and with the confidence that he rose as the first fruits. Well, that gives us confidence for what is to come, the great harvest of which we will be a part if you're in, ad- in Christ, and the ultimate victory. Live with this in mind. May that be precious to us all today. Let me pray. (coughs) Father, thank you so much for this wonderful future that Christians can look forward to with utter confidence. Thank you for the certainty that Jesus did, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And we praise you that he rose as the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. Please, Father, give us that confidence, give us that hope. Please give us that comfort. 
And would we be living with that future in mind? In Jesus' name, amen.